Welcome back to Curious Combinations and Everything's an Original Podcast. My name is AF Tanev, and today I'm going to be covering Episode 3 and Episode 4 of Dark, Season 1. We open on a 1980s television, much like the one we saw in the bunker. This one isn't in the bunker, though. This is in Ulrich's family's 1986 home, where they're leaving the door open in hopes of Matt's return. Poor Mickle walks in, confused and looking for his family, and I feel so unbelievably bad for this poor little kid. He runs into his own grandmother thinking that she's his mom. She thinks for a moment that he might be her own missing son, only for both of them to be so terribly disappointed. But her reaction is ridiculous. Mickle handles it better. There is a frightened little boy in her home, and she doesn't comfort him or anything. She grabs him, hurts him, and demands to know where her own child is. No concern at all for what he's going through. How the hell he got in her house? Who might he be? Nothing. No concern. So Mikkel runs away, we cut to credits, and I am very mad. Can someone please help this poor baby? In the credits, we see the scene of Eric's body being carried away by the mysterious hooded figure, which is the point at which I realized that many, if not all, of the shots in the credits are actually shots from the show. I had been operating under the assumption that maybe it was just aesthetic choices, it was just stock footage chosen to create a vibe. But no, these are clips from the show. They're just hard to interpret when you don't know what the show is going to be about. And when you're viewing them through the weird kaleidoscope of the credits. So of particular interest to me is a shot of what appears to be Mickle entering the bunker, which I assume we're going to be seeing in a future episode. No idea if that's going to be toward the end of the season or sooner. I'm hoping sooner, but quite a few scenes from episodes three and four are in these credits. So we're running through things pretty quickly, at least as far as the credits go. So then we cut to a hospital and a 1980s nurse. It's Inez, Michael's mom, and she's noted quite explicitly to have no family. This reveal gives me a pretty concrete theory regarding Mickle and Michael's suicide, but we're going to get to that later. So elsewhere, the cop, Charlotte, she is a teenager and she's riding her bicycle when she finds a dead bird on the road or the trail or whatever it is. She picks it up and she puts it in her bag, which is disturbing, though we do get a, an explanation for it later that makes it make a little bit more sense. But still, how did Charlotte end up noting about the birds? Does she know that something is wrong there, or does she just frequently pick up corpses so that she can draw them? I'm not quite sure. The radio tells us that we're four weeks out from Matt's disappearance, and we find ourselves now with a cop who has a very conspicuous Rubik's Cube sitting on his desk. It is unfinished, unsolved, which I feel is meaningful. I feel that that Rubik's Cube is there as a symbol, and we do get to see it again later, so put a pin in that. The cop gets a call that we aren't privy to the other half of the conversation of, and then we cut away. On the road, we find a woman putting on her lipstick as she drives and verbally abuses her daughter, Regina, who is the hotel woman from the 2019 scenes. It's really sad to watch, and I feel terrible for the little girl that Regina is. It doesn't, on the other hand, make me feel anything sympathetic towards the adult that she grows into. Adult Regina can kick rocks. So then we're back with Mikkel, who is headed to the high school. I don't really know what his plan is here, but I mean, trying anything is a good idea, honestly. So in there, he runs into his own teenage mom, who is just unbelievably cruel to him, and I'm honestly pretty disappointed in her. I didn't get the impression from her appearance in the previous episode that she was like a mean girl teen, but that is the impression we get here. Her friend with the crimped hair is such an 80s look. It's pulled up in a scrunchie, it's crimped, it's phenomenal, it's so 80s, I might die from it. Um, but her other friend is Hannah, who is noted to be kind of a square. So Hannah meets Mikkel in this scene which is only relevant so far as my theory goes. And like I said, we're going to get to my theory in a minute. 
but again, something to take note of. So we cut from Miggle's poor little face to that same distant shot of the power plant that we've seen in the 2019 time, time thread? I don't know. Timeline? Scenes. In the 2019 scenes. It's very interesting, I think, how this single shot is not changed really at all that I noticed from 2019 and 1986. So you have to wonder, is the shot, what is the purpose of the shot? Is the shot meant to show that nothing has changed regarding the power plant in that span of 33 years? Or is it meant to show the power plant is just a center point of the town? It's so important, meant to emphasize how integral the power plant is to this plot and this town or the other possibility is that maybe this shot is not from either 2019 or 1986 maybe this shot is divorced entirely from time maybe this shot is set in some other important time we don't know but this shot is meaningful and i'm going to find out the meaning of it so at the power plant we have regina's mother she's in charge now and it's groundbreaking because she's a woman and she has an awkward little run-in with a janitor who turns out to be helga the I guess, old man with dementia from the 2019 timeline. And he gives her a gift that we are going to later in the episode learn is the same book that the mysterious hooded man is carrying around in 2019. I don't know what that means, but I know it means something. There's a connection. I'm going to ferret it out. So back with the elderly cop, he's in a field with a farmer whose entire flock of 33 sheep has died. 33 definitely seems to be something of an arc number here. And if this was an American show, I'd say we were doing something maybe with the Freemasons because of that. But since it's Germany, I don't know if that would be a relevant connection at all. But I have noticed not just, you know, it being 33, 33 is considered in conspiracy circles. 33 is a number that gets plucked out and associated with all kinds of nonsense because supposedly there's 33 degrees of masonry. 33 is a number conspiracy theorists like. So having the two timelines happen 33 years apart having the power plant exist for 33 years, having 33 sheep in this flock die, it has to mean something. And I'm going to say that a lot in this show. Everything, I feel like, means something. I just don't know how to interpret it yet. So inside the power plant, Regina's mother, Claudia, gets some kind of ambiguous bad news. Some kind of numbers are off in regards to the power plant, and though we're not really privy to what's going on, it's clearly something shady as fuck and pretty serious from the way she reacts. After trying the school, Mikkel goes to the police station, which, frankly, is a better guess than the school. The same cop from the sheep incident talks to him and jumps to all the wrong conclusions, immediately assuming that this is some kind of a malicious practical joke that Ulrich is playing, and that he beat Mikkel up to get him to go along with the con, which is a strange assumption. One has to assume at this point that this cop thinks that maybe Ulrich, Ulrich, Ulrich had something to do with his brother's disappearance, which is a interesting theory to have i guess i would love to know how he came to that conclusion in any case the cop leaves to go confront ulrich but only after calling the hospital to get miggle patched up i worry that the cop's parting words he won't hurt you again with the he referring to ulrich that they're foreshadowing let's really hope not so back at the power plant a man who we will later learn is ulrich's dad is meeting with claudia under the pretense of interviewing her but it's quickly made clear that they're actually having their own little extramarital affair. I'm not sure if Claudia is married herself, but Ulrich's dad definitely is, and he's complaining about his wife, whose youngest son just disappeared without a trace, losing it. Fuck you. Like, fuck you so hard, dude. In the cop's office, Mikkel waits and pokes around. The Rubik's Cube has been solved, possibly by Mikkel himself, but possibly not. 
We're not sure. If so, there may be symbolism in that. Mikkel solving the Rubik's Cube could be a hint at Mikkel solving a larger puzzle, perhaps even our overarching mystery itself. In any case, he starts poking into news clippings and photos and whatnot of his own uncle's disappearance, and there's actually a pretty strong resemblance between the actor playing Mads and the actor playing Mikkel, which I'm kind of impressed. So Inez shows up at the police station to collect Mikkel, and now we're closing in on my theory, and we're going to be there in just a minute, so hold on. The cop, by now, has reached Alric's home. He finds the door open, just like Mikkel did, and walks inside. Which, again, I'm pretty- well, in America, a cop could absolutely say that having the door cracked like that was probable cause for entry. But I still feel like, if it's not illegal, it's highly unethical. In any case, there's metal music blaring upstairs, and no one to be found until he gets to the source of the music, which is Alric's room, where he's playing on what I think might be an Atari? Don't come for me, I had an NES, so. I, I don't know the other brands. There's a familiar bit of wall art in the room, No Future, which was the graffiti that we saw the janitor trying to clean up at the power plant. What that means, I don't know. Maybe nothing. Maybe something terribly important. I'm sure we'll find out eventually. I'm so lost by so many of the details here and so intrigued. Anyway, it's accusations all around. The cop accuses Ulrich of pranks and sheep murder. Ulrich accuses him of drinking his entire mind away. And honestly, Ulrich seems more likely to be right between the two of them. I don't know if I should or shouldn't yet hate the cop at this point, but I really don't like him. At the hospital, Mikkel is getting an exam. There's nothing seriously wrong with him, and he's unwilling to talk about what happened to him, which is understandable given that no one has believed him so far. Inez is very kind to and gentle with him here, and quite motherly in their next scene together. And so now, now we're at my theory. Inez has no children. She has no family. One assumes that means she has no husband, no one who could give her children. For the relationships of 2019 to make sense, though, she should have already had a son around Mikkel's age or older by this point, and she doesn't. The son that she should have by now, but doesn't have, is named Michael. Mikkel. Michael. Guys, guys, I don't think Mikkel ever makes it back to 2019. I think Mikkel was Michael. I think Mikkel's stuck here in 1986, is going to be adopted by Inez, is going to get married to Hannah, and is eventually going to be cuckolded by his own dad? If I'm right, this is all going to get very incestuous and like quasi-incestuous, pseudo-incestuous, very quickly. Yikes. Just off the top of my head, that's going to mean not only did Mikkel spend his adult life being like the peer of his own father, experiencing the birth of his own siblings, of himself, marry a woman who's having an affair with his father. If Mikkel is Michael, then Jonas is Mikkel's son, and has had a past relationship with Mikkel's sister. If this is true, we just turned Jonas into Jon Snow. Oh my god. Anyway, back at the power plant, Regina's mom is having a confrontation with someone whose identity I'm not really clear on. He's someone else powerful at the power plant, obviously, but I'm really confused on what it is that he does there. He's not Claudia's boss, I don't think, but maybe he is. Either way, they have a chat about what she doesn't know about her new job and what she needs to know about her new job and on and on. And it's clear that she's going to have some secrets revealed to her very shortly. I am hoping to get answers, but I won't get them. Not yet, at least. In the woods, we find Charlotte journaling about the dead bird. She's drawing it. She's taking some notes. I'm not sure which her primary motive is here. Does she intend mostly to draw it and the notes are secondary? Or does she know that something is wrong with these birds? At the coroner's office, the cop is overlooking the necropsy of the sheep. Apparently, they all died of mass panic, but more interesting to me is one concrete detail of their misfortune. They have also had their eardrums blown out. 
From the way the coroner relates it, it sounds like a case of a loud noise fucking them up, not Satanists, like the idiot cop suggests, and as a member of the Satanic Temple, I'm offended. Thank you. That's mostly a joke. But the thing with the eardrums is fascinating. Did their ears get fucked by the same thing that fucked the dead boy's ears up? Maybe. Maybe not. I'm sticking with the centrifuge theory for his injuries right now, so I doubt that's what's happening to the sheep. Maybe some kind of a sound weapon instead. Who knows? Elsewhere in the woods, Claudia and the mystery man in the wheelchair visit some kind of a fenced-in chasm. Claudia heads down into the pit, looking ridiculous in her business suit and heels as she tromps around in the detritus. And in some part of the cave system, we find an enormous stack of yellow barrels with nuclear warning symbols on them. Claudia looks very concerned, and so am I. But what is this? Is it nuclear waste improperly stored and improperly disposed of? Or is it something worse? And if it is something worse, what could be worse? Back at Claudia's house, Regina arrives home to hear that her mother is going to be late. And she pulls her sleeve up to reveal self-harm scars. I feel really bad for teen Regina, and I have to reiterate that. Mostly because I am not swayed at all on adult Regina. She still fucking sucks. In the woods once again, night has fallen and the cop is wandering around. He's set upon by a rainstorm of falling bird corpses, quite like what happened to his apparent daughter, Charlotte, in 2019. At least I think Charlotte is his daughter. I may be wrong on that. It's really pretty disturbing. And it's even more disturbing when we discover that 1986 Charlotte has a freezer full of these bird corpses. What the entire hell does she think is going on? And why is she preserving the bodies? This has to mean that she's doing more than just drawing them, right? But what is she doing? What does she know? What does she suspect? And why, most importantly, is she preserving them in the freezer with her food? Yikes. All throughout the town, while Charlotte is doing this, the lights are flickering, just like they did when Charlotte saw the birds fall in 2019. It's here that I think the show does its most interesting twist so far. The timelines that we're seeing, those first 24 hours after Mikkel goes missing, are playing out almost identically in both 2019 and 1986, and I am fascinated. That night, the birds die, and the lights flicker, and this parallel is solidified here when Mikkel runs to the caves. He's in the caves on the night after he arrives in 1986, and his dad is in the caves on the night after Mikkel disappears in 2019, and they hear each other in the caves. Mikkel hears his father banging on the door. His father hears his voice calling for help. They're at the exact same place in wildly different but very parallel times. And again, I am fucking fascinated. I adore this. Whatever the hell is happening here, I adore this. I adore whatever mind created this. It is a brilliant plot point. Please do not let the rest of this story disappoint me because this is setting such a high bar. I love it. But the bit that's woven in with this is more concerning. We have teen Ulrich talking to Hannah, who is visibly quite a bit younger than him. And I think it's here that we, as the audience, are meant to understand that Hannah has harbored a lifelong crush on Ulrich. The affair might be a recent thing, or it might not be, but the feelings between them are clearly not new, at least not on her end. And given that I'm 99% sure at this point that she marries Ulrich's son, this is all so fucking weird and creepy in a way that I honestly really, really love and kind of wish I hated more than I do. Because it's gross. It's gross. And it's so mind-screwy. And I love it. And I hate it. And it's a nightmare. I cannot wait to find out whether or not my theory is true. And honestly, at this point, I really think it has to be. It's gotta be, right? In any case, we get some looks at who's who in regards to the 2019 versions of everyone compared to the 1986 versions. And it did clear up a few identities for me, mostly revolving around Ulrich's dad. That's first and foremost. 
Um, so while I don't love it as like an artistic choice, I can't say I don't appreciate it. It did what it meant to do, at least for me. There's an unexpected tit flash in here that we get when we get some glimpses of 2019, um, which I sure as fuck was not expecting. And I think the point of it is to imply that maybe Regina has breast cancer. And honestly, no, this still does not make me sympathetic to her, especially because we don't have a confirmation either way. She may be a hypochondriac. I don't know. Who knows? Regina is going to have to do a lot of work before she's not on my shit list. Anyway, back to the caves. Mickle's in there in 1986 and Ulrich's in there in 2019. And like I said, I really love this shit. Mind-bending is right, and I really, truly adore it. Well-done mind-bending stories are some of my greatest loves in life. Media that makes you think. Media that demands you actively watch and think and keep up with the story. Words cannot express how much I appreciate it and I adore it, and I really hope that the show keeps this energy, because right now it's giving me everything, everything that I want. I am so intrigued and so enthralled, and I genuinely might have another new favorite on my hands if the show continues to unfold so satisfyingly. I love it so far. I really do. Finally, confusingly, we cut to some kind of a sciencey type dude, maybe a watchmaker or maybe a theoretical physicist with a big obsession with time. Who knows for sure? Certainly not me. Either way, he's putting the finishing touches on a very familiar steampunky device. It's the very device that the hooded man in 2019 has got in his possession, in his hotel room. So, after watching episode four, which I'm going to get into the recap of in just a second, I have to wonder if this man might be the mysterious Noah that gets mentioned in that episode. And if he is, what the fuck is he up to? I am so intrigued. But on to the next episode. The door to the bunker is open, and the bunker is empty. We see a triketra everywhere. That symbol from Charmed, you know the one. And there's a shot of a tattooed back that immediately and very ridiculously makes me think of Yu-Gi-Oh! More relevantly, it makes me think of cults, potentially an underground familial cult like the Ishtars, again, from Yu-Gi-Oh. If that turns out to be at all accurate, I'm going to lose my entire mind, and I will probably never stop laughing. Not in like a mean way, not in a way of judging the show for the parallel. It's just that that would be funny as fuck if that parallel was there. I'd love that. But it's the use of the triketra that I find very interesting. I know that symbol from pagan worship, but it does also have meanings in Christianity. The Apparently the unbroken circle represents eternity. Uh, the three prongs represent the Holy Trinity. The interwoven nature of the symbol denotes the indivisibility and equality of the Holy Trinity. It symbolizes that the Holy Trinity is three beings of power, honor, and glory, but is indivisibly one God. And that, let me source that information I just gave you. That is from an Angel Fire website, dating back to the original Charmed. And there's no title on the page, but there you have it. Angel Fire, guys. Angel Fire. In Pagan symbolism it's about life and death and rebirth and the three forces of nature which are apparently earth air and water the inner three circles represent the female element and fertility it's also known as the triple goddess the maiden the mother and the crone represent the life stages of every woman and man born to innocence inspired to create then embodied with wisdom the triketra is a symbol of protection it represents the safety of a witch while she's wearing it or showing respect for the wiccan religion as i said if we're doing that symbol as having real-world extant symbolism, I assume we're going more towards Christianity than paganism, but we could be doing anything here. Anyway, after our credits, we start in Charlotte's home. She's not sleeping in the same bedroom as her husband, 
and theirs is the single most strained marital relationship that I have ever seen portrayed. Truly, watching this scene, I had such a moment of, wait, are they married? I thought they were married. Are they not married? Then why do they live together? Are they brother and sister? They can't be brother and sister because I think they're married. I guess they could be brother and sister and married. I hope not. And that was my thought process there. Just a hint of insight for those who are not yet convinced that I'm fully insane. Anyway, what's her face? The redhead, Francisca, I think is her name, is being an absolute bitch to her deaf little sister, and she'll continue to be one throughout the episode. And Jonas's house, he's still looking at that map. And his mom, hurting from her sort of breakup with Ulrich, is trying to bond with him. It's desperate, and it's pathetic, and Jonas isn't interested. At the old folks' home, Charlotte's husband is visiting Helga, who is... His father? Charlotte's father? I think Charlotte's father was the cop in the previous episode. So Helga is Peter's dad. Either way, he keeps repeating TikTok throughout the episode, which creates this wonderful sense of impending doom that's just phenomenally well done. And I hope it continues. As Charlotte drives her deaf daughter Elizabeth to school, she stops on the road and loots a nature camera. She steals the memory card in spite of her daughter's protests. And can we just talk about how horrific the police work is throughout all of the show so far? Everything that could be reasonably considered evidence has been tampered with by the police. Nothing they found in this entire show would be admissible in an American court because they've bungled the whole thing so fucking badly. I am horrified, but then again, this is not unusual for TV justice. That's just what TV cops are like. At the cave system, the paltry bit of caution tape does not stop Jonas from going in under the watchful eye of the mysterious hooded man, who checks his watch in a way that very much gives one the sense that Jonas is right on time for this action. But how did the mysterious man get the schedule he is apparently operating on? Is he from the future? I feel like this could be a hint that he, or someone he's working for, or someone who sent him, is from the future. At the elementary school, Charlotte drops off Elizabeth and is none too pleased to learn that Elizabeth has gotten herself a little prepubescent boyfriend, a boy whose name I don't recall, something like Yanis, something like that. We'll learn later that he too is deaf, and I worry that something really awful is going to happen to him within the next episodes. At the high school, Elizabeth's sister's class, Francisca's class, I think, is interrupted by Magnus's intrusion. The teacher doesn't send him away, which is a kindness I wouldn't expect in an American high school, that's for sure. But he also doesn't stop Magnus from obviously stalking Francisca, and I have some choice and very unkind words for that. I really hate Magnus, honestly, and this episode leaves me right on the cusp of hating Francisca, and I cannot tell you how much I hate the romantic plotline. Ew, 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 ew. Make it stop. The 2019 coroner, just like the 1986 one, finds themselves tasked with the necropsy. But while he had to dissect dead sheep, she has to dissect a dead bird. The bird, just like the sheep and just like the boy, has had its eardrums ruptured, though the impact of falling killed the bird, not the mutilation. I'm thinking some kind of a sound weapon maybe fucked up the bird, but I can hardly be sure. Either way, something's wrong with its feathers, and this fact is again related to nuclear radiation. And Chernobyl. I'm worried. Back at the police department, Charlotte has a chat with Eyepatch Guy. I must know what's up with his eyepatch. And so far, I have no hints at all. Again, there must be something going on here with senses and the lack of senses. We've got burned out eyes, burst eardrums, Helga with his mangled ear, two deaf children, and this one-eyed cop. Something is up with people's senses in this show. And all I can think is that for some reason, whoever is behind this whole thing thinks that time travel is in some way associated with lack of senses. Maybe it's easier when you don't have your senses. Maybe it's more powerful when you don't have your senses. Something to do with senses. And I'm in the dark on what it could be. Later, Charlotte checks the camera's memory card. 
She finds what she's looking for, a car caught on camera during the window of time in which the boy went missing, and it's obvious from her attitude that she knows she's in trouble, because she recognizes the license plate. It's her husband's car. Her husband is now her main suspect. Cut to the man in question. He's getting into that very car, trying to clean up more of that out-of-place red dirt that the boy's corpse was found with. It's very suspicious. And it's as he cleans that he gets his wife's call. She's finally checking up on that really ominous phone call he had with her the other day, and he clearly isn't interested in sharing whatever it was that upset him at the time. It's painfully obvious that Charlotte thinks he's behind the death of that little boy and or the disappearance of Mickle, and I hope she's wrong. I don't know. I just feel pretty sympathetic toward this guy, and I'd hate to find out that my gut feeling so wildly off on this character. In the woods, Francisca digs up a suspicious box of cash from beneath the train tracks, and Magnus lurks around, watching her like a fucking creep. Did I mention that I hate these two characters? Because if I haven't, I think I hate these two characters. I also hate this next scene. Charlotte goes to confront a sex worker who is obviously intended to be a trans woman, and the woman makes it clear that she has been paid to have sex with Peter before, but not on the night of Mickle's disappearance and or the other boy's death. What I don't get about this scene is why this sex worker feels the need to be so purposefully cruel to Charlotte, and I really hope that this is not the last we're going to see of this woman, because otherwise, between this scene and the line we get from Francisca later, if this is all we're getting from this character, the inclusion of her here feels seriously transphobic. There is no point to write a trans character into this role to point out her transness like that, and then to make her unnecessarily mean towards a cis woman for no reason. I'm worried that this is going to come to nothing but transphobia, but I'm going to keep an open mind. In the woods, Ulrich approaches the fence of the power plant in all black with his hood up, very much associating him with the mysterious hooded man. And again, I feel like characters having their hoods up like that is meant to be a very subtle clue to the viewer of something. I don't know quite what. After getting her money, Francisca heads back to school. She's having a dance class of some kind, wearing the kind of uniform that would get an Americ public school burned down by an angry mob of conservatives. I'm not joking. I was told by a teacher once that showing my shoulders was inappropriate in a school setting. This girl has her entire ass out in dance class. And in America, I guarantee you, she would have been burned at the stake. Because America, America, y'all, America's a trip. In the woods, Jonas finds a bike. I'm honestly not sure whose it is. I may have missed that it was his, or maybe it's someone else's. Maybe I'm not supposed to know. In any case, there is a red rope tied onto the handle. Jonas seems to think that this is important, and I suppose it must be important, but I have no idea why. Elsewhere in the woods, Charlotte rolls up on a cabin surrounded by very familiar and very important red dirt. The body of the dead boy was clearly here, or near here, or in some place very like this, at some point. At the elementary school, Elizabeth's little boyfriend, Yasin, 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 we'll go with Yasin, gets picked up by his mother, who offers to take Elizabeth home too. Elizabeth refuses, as her mom, quote, will be here any minute. Unfortunately for Elizabeth, neither of her parents are actually on the way, but Rainstorm is. Charlotte, the mother who is supposed to be picking her up right about now, is instead looking around in the cabin. We don't see what she sees inside, but apparently it's not very important or interesting as she spends only a few seconds in there. Outside, she sees something much more interesting. A shelter door built into the ground. It's clear that this is the bunker where Eric was kept, but there's no indication of the room being done up as a creepy prison the way it was. So arises the question, when was Eric held prisoner? Did Eric travel through time only to get snatched up and imprisoned? Did he get snatched up and then traveled through time with his kidnapper? I think he was held in this bunker, yes, but I think he was held there in either the past or perhaps the future. I'm desperate to know for sure. 
In the changing room after dance class, Magnus confronts Francisca over her money. They have this awful confrontational relationship that feels very teenage, in the most painful way, and includes Francisca uttering this horrible transphobic line about her dad, quote, preferring dick. And between that and the way she literally starts fucking Magnus right there without him apologizing or anything, I really think I hate her now. I was so horrified by this scene. Like, why, Francisca? Like, what the fuck? And why the fuck? And ew, and help, and make it stop. God, I hated it. It was utterly skin-crawling, and completely mind-boggling, and ew. No. Never again. Anyway. Meanwhile, Charlotte and Peter are having an uncomfortable phone conversation. He's hiding something, she's trying to ferret it out, and one of them really needs to go and pick up Elizabeth before something bad happens to her. Cut to Elizabeth, who we discover now did, in fact, steal Francisca's lipstick. The last episode had a couple of different bits about lipstick that might color this scene, namely Hannah's judgment of girls who wear it, and our one and only previous scene of someone applying it, that someone being Claudia. Whether this is meant to make me associate Claudia with Elizabeth, I don't know. It's not like they could be the same person, after all. Claudia is not deaf. At the school, Peter discovers that his daughter is gone. He searches for her, but she's already started walking home, and found one of those familiar candy bar wrappers that Mads so liked. Does it mean Mads is the man who spoke to her and gave her the watch we see at the end? I truly do not know, but I suspect the answer could be yes. In any case, Ulrich has been caught trespassing on the property of the power plant, and Charlotte has to go fetch him. After they drive home, Ulrich gives this awful little narcissistic speech about how awful it is that this happened to him, makes a pointed comment about Charlotte not being the one who lost a kid, and then demands to be let out of the car to go wander in the rain. And then Charlotte gets that horrible call. She is, in fact, now the mother of a missing child. Elizabeth is gone, and Peter cannot find her. Elsewhere, Jonas is once again obsessing over the map. Does he do anything else anymore? Honestly, he doesn't seem to. It's caves, and it's maps, and that is all he does. I'm kind of surprised he doesn't have more to do in this show. I really, truly thought he was going to be, like, the main dean. But he's kind of fallen back. In the woods, Charlotte finds her daughter's hat, but not her daughter. It's a really upsetting little moment because even as the viewer, you can really feel that powerlessness that Charlotte is feeling right now, that absolute despair and helplessness and fear of losing a child and not knowing where she is. There's a clue. The, the hat serves as a clue to where Elizabeth is. But in the moment, it really does more harm than good. If her hat is there and she is not, then something terrible surely must have happened. So Charlotte takes the hat home and she shows it to her husband, and one gets the feeling that their hug in this moment is the first hug they've shared in quite a long time. In the woods, a hooded figure enters the cabin that Charlotte visited earlier. Then Francisca comes home to find her devastated parents, and Helga wanders around town and relays a confused but ominous message to the police. Someone, a male someone, must be stopped. But thankfully then, Elizabeth arrives home. She comes with a strange story about meeting someone, a male someone named Noah, obviously the person that Helga was talking about, and he gave her a pocket watch that supposedly used to belong to Charlotte. My current theory is that it is somehow related to her father, who I think is the drunk cop from the 1986 storyline, but I may be wrong. Francisca appears, momentarily relieved to see her sister, and then slaps the shit out of her for stealing her lipstick. Her parents literally witness this and do absolutely nothing. They don't even look in this poor little girl's direction, and yet that's it. I fucking hate Francisca. Genuinely, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. This bitch hit her little sister over a lipstick. Her deaf, I remind you, little sister. And these jackass parents stood there, saw it, and did nothing. I am so appalled. Anyway, 
After this, we're back to voiceover for a bit, and I am gratified to find that the background detail referencing Ariadne turned out to be something after all. If you see my initial reaction to the show, which I filmed and is available to $5 and up patrons, you'll see that I did notice it at the time. There's a poster in one of the teen girls' rooms, I believe, referencing Ariadne on the wall. But it was such a subtle thing and didn't come to anything very quickly. So I didn't mention it in the podcast. Now it turns out that I should have. Anyway, I honestly keep getting so caught up in puzzling out the meaning of the voiceover that I almost missed mentioning something of serious importance here. The hooded man is in Jonas's room while he sleeps, writing something on the maps that Jonas has been obsessing over. And it's here that it occurs to me for the first time that if I think Mikkel is Michael, that really does open up the possibility of anyone being anyone else. Is the mysterious hooded figure Jonas from the future? Is that possible? Or are we only dealing with 1986 and 2019 as time frames? Or are there other relevant 33-year intervals here? Should I be on the lookout for things related to 1953 and things related to 2052? Or are 1986 and 2019 the beginning and the end alluded to in the voiceover at the end of the episode? Mysteries abound. And on a related note, there was a thing in the previous episode that I found very suspicious at the time. There is a scene, an introductory scene, I believe, for the hooded figure, He's standing on a hill above where the police are searching for Mikkel, and the police do not see him. I assumed at the time that this was more police incompetence, but perhaps it's not. If this person can be there and not be noticed by the cops, and this person can be here in Jonas's room and not noticed by Jonas, maybe this person can be invisible. Is that possible in this show? I don't know. Maybe it is. I hope we'll find out. At the old folks' home, Helga scares the shit out of his nurse by announcing that he has to stop someone named Noah. And then we're back to the woods with poor little Jason, who apparently wants to prove that he's not a baby by walking to school on his own. But I guess no one told him about stranger danger? Which seems absurd. Because he runs into a stranger who knows his name, scary, and who claims to have been sent by Noah, scarier. And I am so concerned for this poor little boy. Leave the little boys in this town alone. Why are we stealing all the little boys? What's happening to the little boys? Anyway, first and foremost, I want to go back and take a look at our two voiceover scenes in this episode. I cannot really place the voice involved in these voiceover bits. It might be Helga, possibly, or it might be this mysterious Noah we learn about in this episode, or maybe it's someone else entirely, like the hooded man, or the man that built the steampunky machine, which honestly might be Noah, or, you know, anyone, literally anyone, anyone male. In any case, let's look at that first monologue at the beginning. I'm going to read it now. Black holes are considered to be the hellmouths of the universe. Those who fall inside disappear, forever. But where to? What lies behind a black hole? Along with things, do space and time also vanish there? Or would space and time be tied together and be part of an endless cycle? What if everything that came from the past were influenced by the future? So that's super, super interesting. There's a thing mentioned elsewhere in this episode that alludes to determinism, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. This final line here is doing something very different from determinism. It is doing like a reverse determinism. What if everything that came from the past were influenced by the future? Being humans, we interpret time as a very linear thing. And it's clear that the premise of this show is that time is not in fact linear. Even in our construction of time travel narratives and time travel shows, we tend to tell them in a very linear, if a circular line type of way. We don't tend to get too timey-wimey because that confuses a viewer or a reader a lot of the time. But if the future can influence the past, the way this implies, 
It sounds like we might be about to get very timey-wimey indeed. I'm very interested. The property that comes to mind most immediately for me when speaking of the future influencing the past, it's a story, a children's book, by the author Catherine Reese. It's titled Time Windows. And the premise of the story is that this little girl moves in with her family to a house where in the attic she finds a dollhouse, an exact replica of the house she's living in now. And by looking through the windows of this dollhouse, she begins to see flashes of the past of the house. By looking through the windows of this house, she sees into two different time frames of the house. And there's a subplot here of an abusive mother in the past influencing the future mothers to live in the home in a very, not a possession, but a suppression kind of way. But more interesting in terms of time shenanigans is that the significant conflict of the story revolves around the death of the little girl at the beginning of the time windows. She ends up falling into a crawl space created for the Underground Railroad, and no one knows where she is, and so she suffocates and she dies. And at the end of the story, and I am, and I am about to spoil this children's book for you, at the end of the story, the main girl manages to save her by watching the past to notice where the key to the attic is and then putting it into the dollhouse which sends it back in time so that the little girl can get it and free herself from the attic before she falls into the crawl space and dies does it make any sense that the key managed to go through the dollhouse like that and change the past which we've seen no it doesn't make sense from that point in the book the book kind of falls apart the book makes it very clear that this dead little girl from this moment on is retroactively turned into a living old woman and the changes are so significant to the timeline that the characters who all knew about the time shenanigans going on completely forget everything that happened over the course of a few weeks it's very timey-wimey it is the most prominent example i've ever seen of time not being a linear thing of time being something that you can shape like putty and if we're doing that here a i find it extremely fascinating and b that would certainly be more mind screw wouldn't it but the, i'm also very interested in this idea of black holes being related to vinden but i'm very i'm also very interested in this implication that the town is like a black hole in some capacity there's a question of what lies behind a black hole and perhaps they're not saying so much that the town is a black hole maybe the nuclear power plant is a black hole maybe the nuclear power plant is hiding a black hole maybe they made a black hole maybe they found a black hole or something like it because if it were a black hole and it were down in that chasm it would pull everything into it a real black hole would destroy us all but maybe there's something like it maybe that's how time and space have been tied together and made part of an endless cycle in this town is that possible is that the kind of thing this show would do i really don't know but there could be some clues in our second monologue so Let's get into this one. This one is at the end of the episode, and I'm going to read it for you now. We're searching for Ariadne's thread, the one meant to guide us along the right path, a beacon in the darkness. We'd love to know our fate, where we're headed. But the truth is, there is but one path through all times, predetermined by the beginning and by the end, which is also the beginning. So there's something very interesting there happening, referencing determinism, which is sometimes taken as a way to discount the existence of free will and i gather that a lot of people don't like determinism such as it is because a they fundamentally misunderstand quantum physics and b they don't like the idea of not having free will 
and not being able to make their own choices. But the fact of the matter is that determinism does not preclude free will. Determinism tells you how your free will works. Determinism is just the acknowledgement that your free will is not chaos. Your free will, your choices within your free will, are made for reasons. You don't pluck things from the ether. You do things because you have reasons to do them. And determinism tells you that those reasons were made by things in the past, which was determined by things before that, which was determined by things before that, and on and on and on, all the way to the Big Bang. But there's an interesting element here of bringing in the idea of predetermination by the end, which is the beginning. Very much referencing a circle there, an endless cycle, as the first monologue said. And it kind of, it kind of takes away a bit from the idea of this referencing determinism, because try, just struggle to wrap your mind around that predetermined by the end. I think it's very interesting how the only way that I can wrap my mind around that is from a storytelling perspective. When you're writing a story, sometimes that is what happens. Sometimes your story is predetermined by the end. And I'm going to reference something that people historically did not like. So I'm filming this on January 19th of 2022. And I believe the first episode, the first two episodes of How I Met Your Father were just aired. I'm not sure what they're airing on, but I do know I've been seeing articles about them. Now, it has been 10 years since the end of How I Met Your Mother, and that show, very famously, has an ending that most people did not like. I disliked it for very different reasons than I think most people disliked it, but most people did not like the end of that show. That show is a very significant, very prominent case of something being predetermined by its end. The end of that show was written at the beginning of that show. And that is the largest critique of that show for most people. Most people who did not like the finale of that show feel that by sticking to the end originally created for the show as part of the premise, the show was not able to grow toward a satisfying conclusion. The show was predetermined by its ending, and it had to be written in such a way as to end up at that end, and most people think the show was worse off for that. And that does happen when you're writing a lot of the time. Sometimes you won't, it's, it's very easy to write a beginning of something. It's incredibly easy to write a beginning. And sometimes it's very easy to write an end. We know from JK Rowling that she had a, um, I believe it was the epilogue of Harry Potter that was one of the first things that she wrote. And we know that the epilogue among Harry Potter fans is largely considered superfluous. Most fans don't love it. Most fans don't hate it. But most fans don't feel that it was really necessary for the story, and yet it was one of the first things that was written. The story was, in a way, predetermined by its end. It's very, very common as a creator to have the end of something, if not already written, then in mind. And to be perfectly honest, if I'm being honest with everyone, speaking as a creative person myself who enjoys writing, plotting, all kinds of stories, I look sideways at any story that does not know its end. I don't trust a story that does not know where it is heading. I need to know when I start a story that at the very least the author knows his destination, that the author knows her or their destination. I don't trust a story that is not predetermined by its end. And the end can shift and the end can change, but if you don't know the end, then I don't trust that you know your story. And so the idea of this stating that the truth is that there is but one path through all times predetermined by the beginning and by the end which is also the beginning 
I'm so intrigued by how that is going to manifest as a concept within the show and not as a metatextual concept for the show, because I love it as a metatextual concept. But how does it work within a narrative? How does it work within a story? I am so utterly intrigued. And we have so many mysteries still open, and we have six episodes of this first season left. And I do not know if this first season is going to give me any answers of this mystery. I know that the show is complete at three seasons, and I believe it is 26 episodes. I had been assuming 30, but I believe it is 26. And 26 episodes is more than enough room to tell a coherent, cohesive, very well done story. But it does give me pause over the idea that we are going to get any satisfying answers in this first season. And I'm kind of hoping that we do, because I've not heard phenomenal things about the end of the third season, the end of the show overall. So if we start getting answers sooner rather than later, I have a bit more confidence that those answers may be answers that I'm going to enjoy. But really, at the end of all things, I don't care when we get the answers so long as we get good ones. So it's a very catch-22 I'm, I'm caught in here. I'm hoping that as I close in on the end of this first season, I won't be left with so many questions and no answers at all. I'm hoping that what we really do with this season and its wrap-up is that we answer a lot of the questions that we have so far and maybe set up a slew of more questions. But who knows? I have no idea where the story is going to go from here. I have not been spoiled on anything. Netflix, of course, as usual, likes to play their little preview quasi-trailer at the top, and I have been studiously avoiding seeing that, because I do not want Netflix to spoil me, and my, but they try so hard. So, with this all said, I am getting ready in a few minutes to sit down to watch episode 5 and episode 6 of Dark Season 1. I will be back very soon to podcast my recap and review of those two episodes, but if you are interested in seeing my reaction to those two episodes, then what you're going to want to do is head on over to my Patreon, where for $5 a month you get access to all of the recordings that I make. All of my reactions to everything that I watch. There is a higher price tier, a $30 tier, to watch those live as I film them, but the $5 tier, you will get those week to week. So if you're interested in that, head on over there to check it out. Otherwise, if you are interested in helping me determine what it is that I watch from week to week, then what you're going to want to do is head on over to the Patreon and check out the $1 per month tier. Any patron who subscribes for at least $1 gets access to all of my polls, which is up to four polls per month, determining what it is that I watch from week to week. This week, I am doing Dark Season 1, Next week, I am hoping against hope that the poll is going to choose for me to do season two of Dark, but I don't know for sure. So if you want your input heard, head over to the Patreon, $1 per month, hit me up, find out what we're going to be watching, talk to me, anything. Let me know what other rewards you would like on the Patreon. Otherwise, maybe leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts from. And beyond that, I'll be back very soon. I'm so enjoying this show. I'm looking forward to finishing this up, at least this first season. I am desperate to know the answers to all of our questions here, and I cannot wait to know where we go now. So with all of that said, I'll be back very soon with my recaps for episode five and episode six.